This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Gaming Sherlock Holmes. My London 2014 Book Hall. And Antoinette Artaud. Gasoline, hang gliders, marshmallows, spandex. That's the worst shopping list I've ever heard. I think you mean the best. Oh, you're talking about Mad Scientist University. I had a feeling we should be talking about Atlas Games at this point in the show. Mad Scientist University is a card game that's exactly like going back to school. Right, because there's an insane assignment and each player has to make it happen using a different unstable element. Like trying to find a willing sacrifice before the next full moon using a hang glider. Or write your name on the moon with beef jerky. Or find Atlantis with tongs. Beef jerky might be better for that. Probably. Uh, Once everyone's mad plans have been hatched and their details described, the group's TA picks the best one. The TA can use whatever arbitrary criteria they choose. Without fear of being fired, it's just like tenure. That evil genius in training who's chosen wins the round. That sounds easier than the thing with a hang glider. Here's the great news. If you buy Mad Scientist University right now, Atlas Games will throw in the Spring Break expansion for free. That's 52 cards perfect for helping you plan that truly unforgettable trip to Mexico. And if you're in the U.S., they'll pay for shipping too. Does Atlas Games hate people outside the U.S.? Not at all. That's why they're offering cut-rate shipping for those folks, too. Now, just like a university essay, we will sum up by telling you what we just told you. In Mad Scientist University, everyone gets an insane assignment. Then everyone uses an unstable element to describe a mad plan for making it happen. And then the TA picks a winner. And when you buy it right now, you get the Spring Break expansion for free. Do you think they sell giant robots at Sandals Resorts? If you're playing Mad Scientist University, you get to decide that for yourself. To learn more, visit atlas-games.com slash Robin dash msu. That's atlas-games.com slash Robin dash m like Mike, s like sugar, u like union. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, that's the way to do it. The clatter of revolver fire drowning out the dice and creating a patriotic VR in bullet marks in the uh, paneling on the opposite wall. The smell of shag tobacco uh, masking even the smell of day-old pizza and weak-old gamer. The (laughs) thump of a wax head uh, deformed by a rifle bullet uh, that crushes the tiny miniatures in its wake tell us that we have entered a particularly... A Holmesian version of the gaming hut. And Robin, why don't you explain to the good people why you and I have uh, fallen once again re over and in love with all things Sherlock? Well, as the master detectives among the listenership, which is to say all of them might detect from our voices, we are both back from Dragon Meat and both feeling a little coffee choky and spluttery, so please bear with us. We're banking a bunch of episodes to cover ourselves over the uh, Christmas and New Year's break. So you'll get to hear us sounding like this for a number of episodes in a row. But uh, one of the delightful things we did while we were in uh, no longer quite so foggy London town was go to the Museum of London to see their current Sherlock Holmes exhibition. So there are all sorts of exciting 
artifacts there from various uh, photos of what Holmes's London looked like to holograph uh, original manuscripts, uh, not only by Doyle, but by Poe. So you got to see how both of them worked and, and revised their manuscripts as they worked. So, for example, uh, Poe worked by slicing out pieces of paper and then gluing them back in again. And uh, looked like Doyle wrote uh, kind of freely with uh, perhaps one uh, light dusting of revision afterwards, uh, putting us in mind of the industry standard of uh, role-playing writing. Uh, and w there were other cool things as well. There was uh, Psycho. Uh, tell us about Psycho, Ken. Psycho was a uh, dummy, a uh, magician's dummy, used by uh, Jasper Maskelin, the father of our uh, hero, the war magician, the other masculine. Uh, re referenced in a uh, previous podcast. Episode. Exactly. Uh, and he could do card tricks and read minds and smoke a pipe. And he was there, I think, because the Museum of London had Psycho, and they thought, well, why not put him out in everything? So I assume that when you go through and you see the London of uh, William Shakespeare, you see Psycho the Dummy there holding up uh, pictures of Francis Bacon or something. But uh, the Psycho the Dummy, it's the sort of thing that you would go, to, uh, I suppose, to a, a music hall, to specifically the Egyptian hall, which is where the masculines did their magic. Uh, and you would see an illusion, and then Sherlock Holmes would spoil it for you by explaining how it was all done. But uh, the uh, the excitement of, of, of Psycho was, was unparalleled because it, you know, the exhibit was very much Victorian London... Uh, with uh, a Sherlock Holmesian uh, Inverness cape draped over it, and then we turn around and, and we saw the exciting uh, Psycho, who was uh, new and exciting to us. He was that telling detail, uh, and, and no doubt there was a mystery to be unfolded in Ray, his presence there. But it was pretty great. Another cool artifact was they had the actual cuffs that they slapped on Doctor Crippen. Mm-hmm. Beloved murderer. Yes, and uh, overall, and of course, there was a big focus on the way that Holmes has been treated in the uh, media, particularly the movies over the years. But we even got to hear some audio of one of the classic uh, stage performances by the actor who defined the Sherlock character uh, almost as much as Doyle did. But in terms of the gaming hut, what we're looking at are ways to import Holmesian storytelling or Doyle's treatment of Holmes into our gaming. So, Ken, what would you say are the fundamental elements of a Holmesian narrative. We've got a number of versions of Holmes that uh, place him in different time periods. There's the uh, the Basil Rathbone, Nigel Bruce movies uh, had him in the then contemporary 40s, so he was fighting Nazis and stuff, and now the two competing Holmes shows are both set in our contemporary era. Is the Victorian atmosphere essential to Holmesian gaming, would you say? I don't think that it's essential. It's certainly one of the things that you uh, can add, and even the modern-day Holmesian TV shows try to emphasize elements of the Victorian. For example, the elementary TV show, like a lot of uh, crime procedurals in American TV, have a, a, a strong class angle that is common to uh, Victorian England and to uh, Sherlock Holmes's adventures, in which uh, whenever he has a noble or elevated client, Holmes is usually a little bit contemptuous of them, or a lot contemptuous, depending, uh, with the exception of actual royalty. And even then, uh, if they're not the royalty of 
Britain. He doesn't much care for them, as the king of Bohemia would be the first to testify. So you have some of that, that class tension and some of the other aspects that are common to Victoria. I don't think that you necessarily need to have handsome cabs and, um, uh, and, and soda water siphons to have Sherlock Holmes. The core of Sherlock Holmes is a hyper-observant sociopath whose moral code nonetheless aligns with that of contemporary justice. And the just, the notion of justice, obviously, is going to depend on who's writing. Doyle's notion of justice was probably more expansive than the average Briton at the time. Certainly, if you look at his, his uh, social activism uh, during his lifetime, you could tell that he was sort of on the forefront of giving a fair shake to uh, non-English people, even if they were trapped in the uh, English... Uh, criminal system, and I think that a lot of uh, Holmesian treatments have had that sort of broad understanding of justice, if only because it makes the story better, that you can, you know, let a uh, someone murder a blackmailer and assume, and say, well, justice was done, not my problem, fortunately I'm not a cop. And Holmes himself is, uh, where, where do we pl- place him in the class structure? He's sort of a product of the uh, upper classes, yet at the same time, uh, I, he sees through the class structure and, and wants to uh, you know, find a form of justice that is not just based on hierarchy. I mean, Holmes is, Holmes is an outsider, not just to class structure, but to all human structures, right? I mean, that's why he has no concept of romantic love. That's why he doesn't care that the sun goes around the earth or the other way around. He is a, a, a not to say an alien being, but like I say, he's a sociopath. He's carved away all those aspects of humanity that don't matter to him, and it is that uh, that quality that the better Holmeses capture, that the the sort of contempt that Jeremy Brett could uh, muster, or the uh, cruelty that that Basil Rathbone's Holmes could show. Those are those are part and parcel of the Sherlock Holmes character, as delineated by Doyle and as um, reiterated over time. And of course, you know, over the course of sixty stories or whatever it is, Doyle allowed his invention to, to get carried away and introduced the occasional moment of sentiment into Holmes. But you can certainly ascribe his affection for Watson to be not much different from his affection uh, if he had one for a favorite horse or dog that had served him well in his, in his mission. The, the human connection is, is very rare in Holmes, and that's why when it shows up in something like the Three Garadabs, we, we notice it all the more. I'm tempted to go down the rabbit hole of is Holmes truly a sociopath, but since this is the gaming cut, I guess we should be moving on to sort of more actionable <laughs> things that you can bring into your game. So that, to me, the fundamental element, I guess, to make a investigative scenario Holmesian, because by definition, that's the kind of scenario you're going to have if you want to have Holmes in it. Yeah, most is... likely. Well, unless you're the guy who wrote the stupid movies. <laughs> right. Um, Nothing against Robert Downey, but he is not well served by those scripts. <laughs> yes, that is uh, definitely sort of a uh, comic book blockbustery Holmes, uh, and uh, you know it's Holmes as superhero and as action hero. It's more Nick Carter than Holmes, ironically. Right, but uh, let's say we want to uh, hit the Holmesian thing and not the superhero Holmesian thing. The elements that you would need for that are a complex puzzle where you have a whole bunch of disparate clues that you uh, put together. Now, would you say that often in the home story early on? Uh, the way that Doyle reestablishes Holmes for us each time, because he's we're usually talking about short stories, uh, but he has to reintroduce the iconic hero each time. And the way they usually do that is by having him make some 
crazy, correct deduction, usually about the client who shows up at the beginning. And it's like, well, you had this on your trousers, so obviously you were at the races, and I can tell that you smoke this type of tobacco because your fingernail is uh, this shade of puce, and so on and so forth. And he gives a huge kind of crazy profiling of the character at the beginning. Are the mysteries themselves, would you say, that complex, or does Doyle establish the genius of Holmes in a sort of show-off moment, yet have a more comprehensible series of clues leading to the conclusion through the story. I mean, we have, I think over the course of the, of the various stories, you can see all kinds. I mean, Silver Blaze, for example, is a classic puzzler, right? It, it, you can believe that no one would get that one except Sherlock Holmes. Conversely, some of the ones, Holmes's power is the same power as Batman, that he knows the writer and therefore gets to have been in the right place and seen the right thing at the right time. That sort of you know, the gumshoe method. He's the guy playing gumshoe and everyone else has to take 20 if they want to find anything. There, there's, and so it varies. Some of the mysteries are, are just the matter of getting Holmes into the right place. I mean, uh, Charles Augustus Milverton, literally, the only thing that happens is Holmes br- has to figure out how to break into Milverton's house. And once he does that, he gets to stand there and watch Charles Augustus Milverton be gunned down by one of his victims. Uh, he then burns everything in Milverton's safe and goes on. But there, there's almost no deduction involved in that. So there's, you go over a wide variety of cases. Some of them are, are quite detective-y and others are much more... Um, uh, you know, uh, Doyle has come up with an interesting idea and wants to see what would happen if. Uh, and, and it's not so much of the early ones are detective and the latter ones aren't because they spread back and forth. But a lot of it is, is, is playing with character or playing with, uh, the sort of, you know, what, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson called Baghdad on the Thames, the notion that, uh, London is a perennial font of weirdness and Sherlock Holmes is the guy to solve it, whatever it happens to be. And that goes to the perennial problem, uh, not only of writing adventure stories, but of gaming of, uh, either writing about or playing a character much more intelligent than yourself. So that even though Doyle controls the whole fictional environment and universe, he's still not as smart as Holmes. Nobody is. So it is difficult to create plausible challenges for Holmes to then plausibly figure out. And you also have the solo hero versus group hero problem. In role-playing, typically we design games for an ensemble of player characters but Holmes is kind of omnicompetent, and although Watson is not uh, as big a uh, boob as is sometimes portrayed in certain movie versions, he is essentially there to you know supply a bit of muscle and to be the listener to Holmes as he right. explains what's going on. So if you want to have a, a Holmesian character, I guess what you would do is you would have little cards that you would hand to that player... And it would have not just, uh, you could do the gumshoe thing, maybe in a, a sort of a solo setting. Uh, but if you have Holmes as a, or a Holmes-like character as one member of your party, I guess what you could then do is you would hand them a card and it would have not only the conclusion, but the crazy set of intuitions and deductions and observations that lead to that conclusion so that they would you know, the player would then read off the equivalent of the, I noticed due to the spatters on his coat, yada, 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 yada. Therefore, we have to go here to find the headquarters of the Golden Dawn. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that can work if you're playing a ensemble piece where, 
You know, you've got Sherlock Holmes and Tarzan and Doc Savage and the Shadow all teamed up to do whatever. And so each of them is going to have a spotlight moment like that. But I think that that can feel like you're cheapening the, the victory of being Sherlock Holmes if your power literally comes from knowing the writer and the GM just hands you a card and, it, oh, well, there you go. It was an elephant that killed him by drowning him with its trunk or whatever. Yeah, that's not going to work at all in, in solo play. Right. You're going to have to have the gumshoe set up where there are a lot of clues that you have to put together. And I guess they have to be, you know, easier clues for the player than they would be for uh, Holmes, Holmes. But that's made easier by the fact that, as you suggested, in a lot of cases, uh, Doyle is unable to construct uh, fully complex uh mysteries for him to solve as well just because uh, mystery writing is hard enough as it is without having a mystery that only a genius can solve i mean you could do a compromise where you hand the the holmes player the card that says it wasn't uh the butler or it wasn't uh the wife or whatever and so they know that it's not the most obvious suspect they know that it's not the person involved and you can even have your you know, uh, deductive justification for that if that's something you want to do. Or you can let the player come up with a ju deductive justification and make it true. I think it's fun if the GM has the moves for it to play the game in which the Sherlock Holmes player uh, engages in what I guess Charles Pierce called abduction, uh, where you take pieces away from the puzzle until uh, what's left is the truth, and just as Holmes said, you know, when you've eliminated the impossible, but you, the GM, don't have a core truth in mind. You may have a, a, a band of truths, but as the player eliminates things, you play ahead of them in a sort of improvisational way, so that as the player seems to be focusing on uh, the red-headed uh, chauffeur, you can say, okay, and you start leaving clues to indicate that the red-headed chauffeur is the person, and then you backstop yourself by saying, nope, it was actually his lover, uh, Lady Constance, that was the uh, that, that was the, the, the mastermind here, just in case the player misses the clues and goes somewhere else. And so you and the player have to sort of cooperate in a little bit of a dance and always make the player's deduction right and impressive in a way that the other players, if they're playing competing characters or characters whose spotlight moment comes in, you know, lifting up great apes over their head instead of deductive reasoning, uh, make that spotlight moment something special. I think it's harder if you're doing a, a thing where, you know, Sherlock Holmes has to cooperate with Batman or Sherlock Holmes has to cooperate with Doctor Who, both of which he's done, obviously, over his, over his existence, because then you really are in a, tr in a, in a bind because you're, you're engaged in dueling spotlights and that can be a bit of a problem and, and it, it's worse, I guess, if Sherlock Holmes becomes an NPC, because then the temptation is just to Elminster all over the thing and have Sherlock Holmes just solve the problem and, and take over the game. One thing you could do for uh, a solo or quasi-solo game where, you know, one player is Holmes and the other is Watson is, first of all, in the player-to-player, -player, you can let the Watson player provide more advice than the real Watson would in character. Mm -hmm. And you could also... Um, steal a march from that well-known hobby game wheel of fortune and have a buy a vowel system right. so that in gumshoe you could uh, have the player could have set number of points where they could they've already gathered the information but if they're stuck on how it fits together they could then spend a point and you as gm can then kind of nudge them along on the deductive process by saying okay uh 
well, you realize that this is a red herring and you realize that this other clue that you've gathered is sort of the key to the mystery so that as a player, you're incentivized to, if you care about this at all, and if not, why are, why are you even doing this? Uh, you still want to solve as much of it as you can. And so it feels like a bit of a um, moral letdown to ask to spend a cheat point, but you spend the occasional cheat point to jog yourself along. And then you're sort of playing a game with yourself where it's at the end of the session, how few cheat points can I spend and still figure out what the mystery is? Yeah, I think that the um, you could have, I guess, a sort of a victory condition in a way, so that, it, like you say, if they spend five cheat points, that's that's an okay victory. But if they've only spent two, that's a really great victory. And they get, you know, more reputation out of that. You know, they, they say that Holmes is, um, uh, uh, had a European vogue or European fame. You know, if it's, the, it's the ones where you solve it with one or two uh, uh, cheat codes that make you super famous, and the other ones are just, well, yeah, all right, you happened to be there while the nice lady shot the blackmailer to death, and you were still on the side of good, and you, you know, sure enough, you, you seduced the housemaid and got into the house, but it wasn't a, um, uh, it's not one of the classic victories that you're going to be playing over forever uh, in your in your memoirs, or that uh, Watson is going to write up first when he's coming up with what your 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 top successes are. Well, speaking of seductions, it's time to move on from that seduction to the seductive lure of books upon uh, one of our podcasters. So let's uh, quickly exit this fog-shrouded Victorian heroic segment and duck into one of London's occult bookshops. So, yes, indeed, it's time for that ever-popular segment, Ken's Bookshelf, in which we vicariously enjoy the books that Ken bought on a book shopping expedition. And this, of course, is the annual mega-expedition to London, which took Ken to Treadwell's, the occult bookshop in London. This time, the magic ley lines led us to uh, that one because uh, our meal lasted long enough that we couldn't get to the other one. But the Treadwells is open later, so they got the bounty. And then we moved on to the new uh, swanky Charing Cross Road location of Foils. Uh, but uh, I think the first one probably came up at uh, Treadwells. Not that anyone cares that much, but uh, <laughs> we're looking at The Masonic Magician, The Life and Death of Count Cagliostro and His Egyptian Rite. Cagliostro is well known to fans of the podcast. We've covered him uh, not so long ago. So what led you to pick up uh, this latest in what must be a uh, foot or so, at least, of Cagliostro books? Uh, I don't actually have a specific... Bi well, I may have one. I don't have many specific biographies of Cagliostro, and this one has uh, the Egyptian rite of uh, masonry in it, which is something that I don't have. And this is the ma magical Masonic uh, initiation that he came up with, which is sort of the core of his, you know, linking all of these various occult groups uh, together in... In, in Britain, so it's a it's a handy little uh, bio of our pal Cagliostro, and it comes from a uh, what do I want to say a resoundingly pro Cagliostro and pro Masonic uh, position, which is something that I enjoy. Uh, I, I like the the guys who are in there swinging. I like the my bio of my biographies of Saint Germain, for example. I like the one by the lady who believed that Saint Germain was in fact an enlightened soul who came down from 
uh, the Akashic Plane to guide us. I, I think that that's a more fun biography, uh, if not quite as useful as the one that <laughs> actually went through every single European document of the area and, and carefully copied it out. I'm glad that I have that, but the one that believes that he was a space uh, elder is more fun. Uh, similarly, I think that a pro-Cagliostro, pro-Memphis uh, right uh, book is going to be more fun than one that is uh, that is not. So in this one, he's not a grifter at all. No. He's, he's a great magician. He's a great magician. He's someone who um, uh, who worked with the poor and, and helped everyone. And if only you'd listened to him, there wouldn't have been a stupid French Revolution at all. He's he's a good guy. Well, I guess Treadwells might have fewer books on its shelves if it, if it only focused on the griftiness of the right, yes. occult figures. No. <laughs> it would be a different store. Yes, that's by Philippa Falks mm-hmm. and Robert L.D. Cooper. Next up is... The Demonic Connection by Toyn Newton, and that's an investigation into Satanism in England and the international black magic conspiracy. Yes, and this is one of those that I um, I enjoy this kind of book. First of all, I enjoy the international satanic conspiracy. I don't think that it gets enough love. Um, <laughs> I, I think that there's uh, there's... It's it's a People fun. Are so cons- down on the international Satanists. right? Why is everyone so down? I I like that. I I just like the sort of medieval nature of it. I mean, this is literally the same conspiracy theory that people came up with in 1486, and to see it still you know knocking along now without the part where you're you know hanging old people for it. I I love this. I I think if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Exactly. And there's there's a terrific uh, book by a guy named Maury Terry who was I don't know if he was a cop or a wannabe cop or a true crime journalist, but he was very insistent that all the various uh, sensational splatter crimes of the late 60s and early 70s were all connected in uh, in a in a global satanic uh, conspiracy. It's called The Ultimate Evil, and it's it's really, really good. And I, I like this. I like the, the connection of that. Also, it looks into the specific location, which is the kind of thing that I like in my elliptony. I like things like uh, The Mysterious Valley, which talks about the uh, San Juan de Cristo Mountains and the and the and the valley and all the weird stuff that happens there. This looks at a place called the Rape of Bramber, which is in Sussex, and includes in its area uh, Clapham Forest, which of course is significant to you and me because Clapham is where uh, International Pelgrane headquarters is. So if we can tie our uh, lovely employer into the satanic uh, Hecate ring, then I think that we have. We have a, some real leverage next time. <laughs> and and according to the cover image, the main product of satanic conspiracies are giant egg sacks that float on blasted heath. So well, we got to watch out for that. Absolutely. You should always watch out. I think that that's, that's got a little Hieronymus Bosch going on with the cover artist, which is always good, too, when the cover artist wants to draw his own thing and he doesn't care what's inside the book, because that's for losers. So I'm I'm very happy with that. The next item on the list is something I, too, can speak to, because it's the program book for another exhibition that we caught while we were in London. There are all sorts of, and there are other cool things as well. There's like a, we missed the uh, witchcraft in uh, painting exhibition at the British Museum, but we did see Terror and Wonder, the Gothic Imagination at the British Library, and that uh, is an exhibit basically of the origins of what we would now call modern horror. It started out as the Gothic with uh, the Castle of Toronto. Again, a previous segment on the podcast and there are all sorts of uh, interesting artifacts there the although it was by the british library they made sure it wasn't just manuscripts there were movie posters or production designs from uh, hammer films 
and uh, there were some particular uh, treasures of interest to both of us. There was the Dear Boss letter, uh, and as a ripperologist, do you want to give people some context on that? The Dear Boss letter is one of the two or three letters that may have been, and I emphasize may, have been an authentic letter from Jack the Ripper, because it does seem to have information that was not publicly available in it about the murders. And he mentions, for example, that he's going to uh, cut off uh, the next girl's ears, and indeed the next uh, victim has a, a, a chopped off earlobe. And so there is some possibility that, that there's a connection. The other, the, as against that, there, there, you can you can find books or websites that go really, really deeply into the specifics of of London postal delivery and whether or not given journalists knew stuff about the given uh, murder scenes. So it's still possible that the Dear Boss letter is is not actually from Jack the Ripper, and it, it, that's actually probably the way to bet. But if you're picking uh, the Jack the Ripper letters that might be true, um, the Dear Boss letter is is one of those, and. Uh, it was just pretty incredible to just sort of sit there and look at it. Sheila, of course, when I came home and told her about it, she says, well, did it look like it was written by a serial killer? And I don't know anything about Victorian graphology, but it looked pretty neat. I can tell you that. And there was also John D's Obsidian's Grindstone. Yes! Yes, which uh, he had. It was an obsidian stone that was cut flat. Uh, to turn into a, a creepy dark mirror. It was taken from an Aztec temple, and uh, John D. got it somehow, probably from loot from one of uh, Sir Francis Drake's piratical voyages to the Caribbean. And then he polished it up and had Edward Kelly and his other scryers look into it and talk to angels for him. And later, it was bought by our buddy uh, Horace Walpole as one of the weird medieval uh, curios to put in his amazing and crazy good house, Strawberry Hill. And so, therefore, he uh, had it in his collection, which is why it's in the British Library's collection and being displayed as part of the uh, Gothic uh, exhibit as opposed to somewhere where it should be displayed as part of a John Dee exhibit. It was just a, a nice thing to stumble over. And they sort of, you know, justify it by, by showing, once again, the old woodcut of John Dee summoning ghosts and saying, look, John Dee's doing something sort of horror-y. I'll bet that's a connection. But they just wanted to show off their mirror. <laughs> and, and, and it was there with its uh, handy scrying mirror carrying case. So that's, uh... Exactly. Yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a really great... Uh, it was, it was a, one of the many good moments in that exhibit. That, that was, you know, for something that was 90% books and letters, it did a really good job of making it not 90% books and letters. Right, and there were more holograph manuscripts, so you got to see how uh, crabbed uh, Charles Dickens' uh, manuscripts were. Uh, mm -hmm. That must have been a real uh, eye pain on whoever had to transcribe it uh, into uh, typeset format. Um, and also, I've never seen before the actual unbound uh, serial editions of his novels. And yeah. so it really hits home to you. Oh, these were sold like comic books. Yeah, they're, they're just piled up there like uh, someone's copies of Action. Yeah, intellectually, I knew that that uh, is what the deal was, but I was surprised by the physicality of it. Um, and there's also an uh, original manuscript of uh, Frankenstein, and that uh, indicates also a light revising hand. There was uh, one level of revisions on that. So uh, take that, everybody who thinks you have to write uh, 15 drafts of something to have a classic. And uh, also, she was, it was the revisions were in the handwriting mostly of Percy Shelley. They weren't even her revisions. It was, it was him uh, mansplaining uh, what she ought to do to make the story better, and I suspect she left a lot of it out. 
<laughs> yes, they, they might have been a, a level of unrevision afterwards, and uh, mm-hmm. you and I are familiar with that as well. <laughs> Some of those changes may have been reverted. Well, speaking of Strawberry Hill, the next book on the list is Strawberry Hill, Horace Walpole's Gothic Castle by uh, Anna Chalcraft and Judith Viscardi. Uh, we've already explained that this was Walpole's crazy treasure trove of awesomeness. Is there anything more that need be said as to why you picked up that book or why other people might want to do that? I mean, I picked it up, uh, first of all, because I suspect it was the uh, catalog of a previous exhibit that we missed, and that's a, a handy thing to um, uh, a handy thing to have. It's got a lot of... Um, There's a ton of research value in pretty much any um, museum exhibit catalog. I just... Uh, uh, wish they uh, were cheaper, and I had a bag of uh, holding to uh, put them in to fit them in my apartment. Yeah, it is. It is a little um, tricky to store some of these things. Uh, this one has got uh, a lot of. It, it's not quite so much the you know Strawberry Hill as you or I would have curated it. It's much more sort of an architectural and textile and uh, interior arts historian might have curated it. Uh, which means it's still crazy and good. but It's crazy and good, but fewer scrying mirrors. Exactly. Fewer scrying mirrors, more fragments of wallpaper. Um, but again, Walpole's sensibility is the sensibility that drove horror fiction for arguably 200 years until H.P. Lovecraft added a second dimension to it, or a third, depending on exactly how many dimensions you feel like Walpole had. And so I, I think that to look at the way that he lived is to sort of look into the womb of, of horror. And if you're a horrorist like I am, even if all you're looking at is, you know, the window treatments, you're getting an, in, an insight as to what it was like to, you know, be the guy for whom the Gothic suddenly instantiated and, you know, you're present at the creation in a way. Right. And as a gaming resource, it's something you can hold up for your players and say, the parlor looks like this. Right. Or you can look at it and say, I... I, I wonder what that little finial means, and you can ascribe to it uh, pregnant uh, gothic meaning, and then put a little finial like that in the manor house of, of one of the other people, and uh, borrow meaning from it into your game, which is, of course, what you're doing ideally with the gothic anyway. Continuing our theme, Gothic Histories, The Taste for Terror, 1764 to the Present, by Clive Bloom. Yeah, that's uh, basically just a good old history of the gothic. I have a number of those. And uh, this is uh, one that was on sale in that uh, in the gift shop at the Gothic exhibit, and it looked relatively affordable and certainly attractive. And I figured, why not give it a shot? If you know, uh, Gothic histories sort of go all over the map in a way, and you know, you have to assemble a lot of them before you can necessarily find uh, the ones that uh, are going to give you. Uh, everything that you need about a given topic. But Bloom is a, you know, he, he's very much, you know, all of culture matters to all of culture type guy. And so there's a lot of good, you know, cross-pollination and inspiration in that. And I think that it's a, it, it's a, it's kind of a terrific uh, look. And I, I also agree with any uh, treatment of the Gothic that doesn't restrict it historically, that doesn't say the Gothic exists before the French Revolution and after the French Revolution we are into the Romantic and the Gothic is dead. The Gothic is an eternal uh, thing about, you know, Western society, or at least about Anglophone Western society, and I suspect about Northern European society, that is going to be with us forever. And once you can deal with it, you can interpret it into our 
uh, into our sensibility usefully in the way that Lovecraft did uh, for uh, the modern era. And I think the postmodern Gothic is well overdue, quite frankly. Yeah, one of the interesting points made by the show was about the impact of the French Revolution in changing the flavor of the Gothic, and it became more shocking and horrible as a way of processing the real-life shocking and horrible events of the revolution as seen from England. And in the same sort of way that American horror films became more bloody and, uh, and, and in your face as we start seeing, you know, Vietnam on in color on TV all the time. Absolutely. And so that is something that I think is sort of under understood in horror is the way that it enables us to process and in a way sort of tame the real horror of the outside world. And of course, that's a big, uh, theme of the esoterrorists is all about processing the anxieties of our current hypermedia environment. And to see that that is part of a long, long tradition, I think, is, is very instructive. Uh, speaking of long traditions, even longer back in time, we go to Britain, B.C. by Francis Pryor. I understand this is your uh, basic uh, early Britain history with an emphasis on new archaeological discoveries? Yeah, it's basically the, the guy's a I don't know if he's an actual anthropologist or archaeologist, but he's a popular anthropologist and archaeologist. Uh, I think he did excavate one uh, site in the Fens, and then he's sort of taken you know, his connections and said, I'm going to write that popular book of uh, ancient history that all archaeologists owe it to people to write, and if more people agreed with Francis Pryor, this would be a better world. Um, there's a lot of, uh, of, of stuff that has been done, basically, I think, starting in the 90s, once you start getting computerized mapping of all of Britain, once you start having satellites and satellite tomography becomes cheap enough that everyone can do it, and they start finding new things, and they start noticing how much more of the countryside got uh, exploited, even with the relatively small population density of ancient Britain. And again, one of the things that they're finding is that Britain's population density wasn't as small as maybe they thought it was, that it was a relatively rich and clement island, and that's what the Romans are doing invading it in the first place. And, and that's often a, a discovery that we're finding with uh, the same is true with uh, South and Central America, that it turns mm -hmm. out that they supported much bigger populations than uh, we imagined before we started measuring stuff with satellites. Yeah, he, um, he, he has a sort of an odd, uh, I don't want to say odd, but certainly a, a idiosyncratic notion that the life of Britain, B.C. is the life of basically the independent villager, right? That they, he, he's very much reading his notion of what an ideal Britain is back into the past. Again, like all archaeologists do always. And I think you have to correct for that when he starts talking about how, oh, there probably wasn't a Wessex king who built Stonehenge. It was probably a bunch of people all agreeing to drag sarsen stones for hundreds of miles uh, as part of a club or, or local activity. And again, having you know met British people, I don't rule that out. But I think that it's probably more likely that there was some you know rich, uh, powerful king who made everyone drag sarsen stones across uh, uh, great lengths of Wales. And and uh, and put them up in in Stonehenge. It's, so he's it's, got... sort of, it's sort of the Hobbit fantasy versus right. the reality yeah. of how uh, class hierarchies work. Yeah. So I, I would not I would not make it a you know the only thing you read about British archaeology, but certainly uh, because of that uh, reading of the of the present into the past, it makes it a more gameable uh, work. And you can look at the. And he goes into some uh, some detail on on a lot of different sites, and so you could you could set a, a whole 
a whole game or a scenario at, at one of these places and either as part of your, your time watch game or, or, or Doctor Who, of course, because Doctor Who never goes anywhere except Britain. Um, you can go to one of these specific sites or you can use that as sort of your, your mank for any uh, Bronze Age or Iron Age uh, society before the coming of the bad people. Doctor Who goes anywhere that looks like whales. Right. Anywhere that looks like a quarry <laughs> is where he goes. <laughs> Um, yes. The next one, I, I think I recall a, uh ironic chuckle regarding the subtitle of this one. Uh, Giles Milton's Russian Roulette, How <laughs> British Spies Defeated Lenin. Um, yes. <laughs> so so w- when exactly was Lenin defeated? Yes. Well, you have to understand that when you are a British historian, it is incumbent <laughs> upon you to uh, write triumphalist histories of your country's greatest embarrassing failures. And so, in the same Dunkirk spirit, if I may, Giles Milton has taken on the catastrophic failure of British intelligence to overthrow the Bolshevik Revolution and turned it into the great and heroic story of how British intelligence prevented the Bolsheviks from spreading their revolution to India. Now, oh, wow. in fairness, well, we go. the Bolsheviks did not spread their revolution to India. He's dead certain about that. Therefore, they were utterly defeated. Now I understand. And he did get a lot of the documents that, that drive this new version of the story, which, of course, we've read in everything going back to the 70s. Riley Ace of Spies is basically about this as well. Um, and a lot of new documents have come out of the India office that talk about the India political office and its intelligence work against the, the communists. Written by members of the India office. Well, I mean, it's, it's their documents. It's, yeah. it's primary history. It's just like all primary history. And they have a lot of copies, apparently, of the Indian office, office files of MI6 files that are still classified in MI6. So Milton is actually... Uh, opening up new drawers that other people haven't opened, but I think that we are over-egging the pudding if we suggest that uh, British spies thwarted Lenin's plot uh, so much as British spies uh, played him to an embarrassing uh, draw at best. Um, but it is a good book, and it talks about what is one of the most fun and exciting and game-worthy uh, periods of uh, of British intelligence history, and Milton is a really good writer. I mean, his he has a, a, a great book about um, uh, the Roanoke Colony. He has a a, a, a bunch of good books uh, that are all uh, really terrifically well written. He's a great popular historian, and I love uh, I, I love his writing. Um, that said, uh, he is <laughs> he is British, and therefore is um, uh, is writing to that specific cultural demand. Uh, for uh, victorious narratives, even in the unvictorious past. Right, which is not to say that all British historians do that. No, oh. but it is the, it is the sort of thing that one sees a lot of British historians do, and even the ones who aren't doing it are doing it sort of writ large. Like Hobsbawm, for example, would never in a million years write a triumphalist narrative of Britain's failure. What he writes is a triumphal narrative of the British working class's failure. So it's the same thing, um, and it's um, uh, and it, and again, it's not Im- you know other other great nations are not immune to that temptation, but uh, that, uh, that that special Dunkirk spirit is something that is is uh, it's it's special. It's why we love them. Uh, again, suggesting that I accidentally grouped your books by theme when I photographed them on my phone. We come <laughs> to Vadim J. Burstein's Smirsh, Stalin's secret. Weapon. Now, uh, in addition to having the best acronym of any spy agency uh, ever, what does he have to tell us about Smirsh? Uh, Smirsh 
uh, sadly for everyone who wants Smirsh to be the guys who send sexy honey traps to get James Bond, Smirsh was actually the guys who went into the front after the Red Army pushed the, the, the Nazis back and just shot everyone who could even be colorably thought of to have collaborated with the Nazis. So, you know, when, when you hear about how the Russians lost 20 million people in World War II, a minimum of 1 million of those people were killed by Smirsch for cooperating with the Nazis. And cooperating with the Nazis might have been just, uh, didn't, you know, uh, didn't die defending their, their barn as opposed to actually help the Nazis do anything. Smirsch had their quotas to meet just like everyone else in the Soviet bureaucracy, and all the the fighting men on the Soviet front hated Smirsch because they could accuse you, you know, if, if you had gone out scouting, right, and you came back with a chicken, you could be accused of having, you know, uh, gotten it from the from the Germans and be executed for that. And so there was a lot of, uh, of damage that Smirsch did, I mean, in addition to just shooting perfectly sound Russian infantrymen, but also in terms of causing Russian infantrymen to turtle up and not and not exploit uh, any territorial gains. Right. So not a spy agency at all, but a death squad. Yeah, they were a counterintelligence death squad. They were huge. I mean, they had something like 25,000 officers working. It, it, it's a giant number of, of guys. So, so a, a death legion. A death legion. And if you compare them to Obwehr, which is the German military intelligence that they're theoretically countering, it, it's like by a factor of, uh, you know, four orders of magnitude more. Obwehr's staff was about 80 on the Eastern Front, and the, and the Russians have got tens of thousands, possibly a hundred thousand guys working for Smirsch when all is said and done. And this is a really good, uh, solid documentary history of them, but they do get shut down in 46 after they've done their part to sort of gather up all of the papers from the German army command that are going to be used in the Nuremberg trials. And so they're sort of the, the, the prosecutor's research team, I guess you want to say, out there taking depositions <laughs> any way they can. Uh, but not prisoners. But not prisoners. And so then they, uh, get, they get disbanded, and the guy who ran Smirsch gets promoted into the main, what it's the, I think it's the MGB at that time, or MVD. Uh, Stalin is, is going through acronyms like a crazy person for a bit. <laughs> As crazy people do. It's what's going to be the KGB, and this guy gets promoted into that, and then I think he gets purged by Khrushchev. Uh, and so, you know, even if Smirsch was alive as a secret directorate, as, uh, as Ian Fleming might believe, it is it is gone by then, sadly. But it's so, a great book well, if you are into... Not, not sadly in, in real life. Yes, right, yes, no. Sadly for, for game designers, because Smirsch is more fun to say, as you uh, noted at the top of the segment. Um, and, uh, and it's a really good look at what, you know, that sort of bureaucratic murder machine that uh, Stalin did so darn well. Uh, yes, well, I guess it uh, follows a couple of Stalinist principles, which are... When in doubt, throw people at the problem. When in further doubt, shoot. Yes, shoot those people. Uh, next up, The Camden Town Murder Mystery by David Barrett. The Camden Town Murder was uh, one that happened in, I believe, 1907. It was a woman named Phyllis Dimmick. She was a lady of the evening, and she was murdered in not a super gruesome way, but a pretty gruesome way for 1907, certainly. And a lot of people, even at the time, uh, because Jack the Ripper even in 1907 was selling papers, uh, said, maybe it's Jack the Ripper, uh, who was just, you know, doing something else for 30 years. And I suspect that David Barrett, although I have not read that chapter of his book yet, says, 
maybe it was Jack the Ripper. Um, but it is a fat lot of data about the Camden Town mystery, and so anything I want to know about the Camden Town murder is going to be in there. Camden Town murder is also famously painted by uh, the painter uh, Sickert, and that is one of the uh, briefs in Patricia Cornwell's indictment of Sickert as the Ripper, is that he painted the Camden Town murder. And that well, is that's the kind open of, and shut, exactly. If 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 Smirsch would shoot him on that basis, and can we do any less? I ask you. But yes, the, the Camden Town murder is you know, it's it's from sort of a, a quaint age in which one person being murdered you know made headlines forever, and even in the relatively uh, low crime Britain compared to say Chicago, I I doubt that that's true. That you have you know people a hundred years later writing about one given uh, lady being uh, killed in her apartment. Now, the next one appears to have been written by someone who uh, followed you in your time machine. This is Archduke Franz Ferdinand Lives, A World Without World War I, by Richard Ned LeBeau. This is kind of a neat thing. I mean, I, no, I'm going to say it's pretty much a neat thing. And what he does is he makes the argument, which is, perfectly legitimate by my lights that without the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand, you don't get World War I because there is, there, you have to have a unique set of personnel choices that are made in these autocracies. It's not, you know, the great forces that drive you into World War I. It's the Kaiser being an idiot. It's the Austrians uh, having just lost the main guy who believes in not going to World War I, being shot by the Serbs. It's a lot of very specific personal choices in Vienna and Berlin that drive you into World War I, that if you just put it off for a few years later, the correlation of forces changes, and no one would uh, possibly have been able to believe the Schlieffen plan was going to work, so you have a, a different set of, of assumptions. So his argument is, if you just prevent the Archduke from dying, you prevent World War I. And once you've prevented World War I... What happens? And so he presents two alternate histories, what he calls the best case and the worst case. And in the best case scenario, uh, you don't have World War I, and uh, the Russian Revolution is relatively easily contained, and Germany becomes de democratic after a constitutional crisis in the 20s, and Germany's democracy pulls the rest of Europe and uh, the developing world into the democratic orbit, and everything is, is uh, peaches and cream, with the exception of civil rights in America being considerably farther back because we don't have the great migration of the cities uh, to fill the World War I and World War II factories, and we also don't have a great war against two giant racist superpowers to make us uh, look bad. So that's his sort of best-case scenario, and then his worst-case scenario is one in which the constitutional crisis goes the other way. The German military basically sets up a, a military dictatorship in Germany, like a Putinist regime, if you will, and Putinism, or uh, state nationalist government, almost not quite fascism, but, but that level of, of right-wing authoritarianism becomes the norm everywhere except Britain and France and America, and so the world uh, is, is considerably worse. Now, again, uh, in the best-case world, India becomes a full dominion of the of the British Empire and becomes its own country, just like Canada, but without all the being angry at everyone, which I think is maybe a little bit of a stretch. In the worst world, of course, colonialism is still, you know, booted and, and spurred in the saddle. LeBeau makes a brief argument that that's probably better than the sort of genocides and miseries that Africa and South, and South Asia fell into after uh, decolonialization, but I think he's a little glib about uh, about that cost and a little... Uh, 
I don't want to say optimistic, but I think that he's a little unreasonable when he says that there wouldn't have been decolonial pressures in the absence of World War One. I. I think that you're still going to see demographic changes that are going to force that, even if um, uh, World War One doesn't allow the colonial masters to slit their throats and, and bleed all over the third world first. So how common is this as a, a format that is a non-fiction alternate history book in so far as it's not doing the thing that bores me to tears where uh, they're creating an alternate history and then wrapping a novelistic narrative around it that always uses the, the same tropes and cliches, but it's just doing the thing that people are interested in, which is the historical speculation thing. Is this a, a kind of a new approach, or are there dozens of these that I just haven't noticed? It's becoming more common than it used to be. It used to be that For Want of a Nail, uh, which is the story of how uh, the uh, rebels were uh, defeated, as, as well they should have been, in... Um, uh, uh, the revolution and the really hardcore ones went off to Mexico to be filthy hardcore uh, uh, Americans, and everyone else was Canadian. Um, in a sort of a, a, a and that's a big fat, you know, straightforward history of North America, and it has footnotes to imaginary books, and it's a it's a really big crazy deal. And it was almost the only book like that for a very long time. There are individual collections of essays that are just what you're talking about that just set forth the the alternate without any fictional. Uh, skeletons, and we're beginning to see more and more alternate nonfiction long form come about. And I think that this is not—it's not super common yet, but it's becoming common enough that you stop having to explain it in more than you know, like five pages in the forward. You can actually get to the good stuff. So, in a different alternate timeline, uh, this is where the what the Ken Height who is not writing role playing stuff writes. Yeah. Um, the, there, there are a number of, of alternate Ken Heights who don't write role-playing games, and in, in one of the closer ones, uh, he's writing um, non-fictional uh, alternate history. And there's a lot of there's a lot of good ones. There's there's some uh, there, there's some that sort of try to write it like a 19th century narrative history. So there's a little bit of that. Uh, Peter Soros, who is one of the sort of big names in alternate history, has like a trilogy of of um uh, the of the civil war with britain involved in it that that has some some narrative component and takes way too long as a result but it's still you know really uh really gritty and it talks about things like you know uh uh, uh iron mines and and whatnot that you can't really throw into a novel without it really sounding like a band book. Uh, next up is a title that I bet uh, you and Sheila will be uh flipping a coin to see who gets to first. That's a poisoned past by Stephen Bednarski, and that's The Life and Times of a 14th Century uh, Woman Accused of Poisoning. Yes, um, that is uh, something that I have got for my lovely wife because uh, she you know, needs to know all about how people murdered their husbands in the past if she's going to do a proper job of it in the future. Um, and also, our she's, friend Rob gets so sad when you make those jokes. I don't understand why. You know, <laughs> I don't come into his life and tell him he, how he's doing stuff. But uh, the, uh, but the, the specifically what it is, it's it's a it's a lovely in, instance of you know what what they call um, micro history, where you take a, a single human life and you find out as much as you possibly can about it, and you build out sort of a picture of the society around that person. Uh, and this one includes uh, Bednarski also talking about how he figured out 
all the things that he figured out. So it's also a little uh, textbook of historiography. How do you learn things about the past? What's the technique that you use? And so it, it's kind of good, good on that level. But uh, Sheila is uh, very interested in... Um, uh, it, it turns out there's not a special word for killing your husband. Meriticide is as close as you can get. Uxoricide is killing your wife. But meriticide... She's interested in meriticide professionally and um, is working on her own uh, book about a famous poisoner. And so, therefore, I think that this was a, was a, was a kind of a, a layup... An, an easy shot to, uh, to to give to her. And I will let her read it, and then I will uh, follow along in her wake. Speaking of uh, prep work, uh, Sheila buys the plastic sheeting. It's Victorian Murderesses by Mary S. Is it Hartman? Hartman, yeah. Yes. Yeah, this is a, um, uh, a book that I think originally came out uh, probably around the turn of the century. And it's an, a collection of essays about uh, various um, uh, Victorian murderesses, just like it says. And when I gave it to Sheila, she starts thumbing through the table of contents, and she's like, oh, I don't know this one. Oh, she was a wrong one. Oh, <laughs> this is good. Oh, I wonder what they're going to say. So it's, it's always good to, to, to give a book to someone who's a, a connoisseur of the topic. Um, this is... You know, it's it's just a it's 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 a top notch little collection, and if you have a favorite murderess uh, amongst the set, you can go and find ideally a a deeper book about the single topic. But it has a um uh, a, an obvious uh, feminist, not even subtext, I guess, a, a feminist text uh, when it talks about the relationship of women and uh, murder, and usually their husbands, because that's who women are, are convenient to in the Victorian time. The subtext being many of them had it coming? <laughs> yeah, I suspect uh, a lot of them had it coming. And um, even if they didn't, they might have had it coming. As a, as a class, they had it coming. So it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's a, of a piece with what uh, true crime collections are, and whether or not it's, uh, you know, whether or not the prose is, is fluid is something I can't speak to, but it you know, 13 chapters, uh, you're, you're hardly going to get bored with any of them, I would think. And, you know, there's always going to be another murderer right around the corner. Now, uh, on one of these trips, I feel that I have not quite done my part if I haven't handed you at least one book that goes onto your pile. And this one is, uh, in keeping with its theme, that no author is listed on the cover, it's called Streetwise Spycraft. Right. Uh, St Streetwise Spycraft is written by a guy who uh Barry Davies who has made something of a career of taking I I suppose SAS uh training books or other sorts of um field manuals of the British uh, security service and turning them into books that he sells for uh for the common punter to pick up. So this is a redress of a book that he wrote called the Spycraft Manual which came out a few years ago and it's now in a uh handsome foldy pseudo uh, educational sort of way um, and it has you know the, the the standard mix that you will find of nonsense and these total side issues you know what is Mossad that's what I want to know in my spycraft book but it also has some fairly standard here's how you spot a tail here's how you leave a, a dead drop uh, things like that so when people say is there a book that will t teach me about uh, spy work I would say that Streetwise Spycraft will be a handy resource for your Knights Black Agents game. It is not what it ought to be, but it is, um, you know, it's it's farther along than a lot of th than than virtually anything else you're going to find, and 
it has a uh, bibliography to a lot of uh, U.S. Army and other governmental field manuals that I suspect if you dug into those, you would find sort of the graduate-level course on uh, on spycraft that, uh, uh, that, that you are looking for if you are looking for that kind of thing. Um, Barry Davies apparently... Uh, was an SAS veteran, according to his publicity, although people say that all the time and are not always the case. But I think that this is, um, you know, this is half, this is half decent. It was certainly worth picking up just to have a, everything in, in one place. It is, it is not everything it ought to be, but I have come to understand that not everything is everything it ought to be in this fallen world. Now, at this point, our listeners are going, but what about botany, Ken? And that would bring us to trees in Anglo-Saxon England by Della Hook. Uh, why did this one leap into your pile? There is a book, which I don't know if we've talked about, and it might make a, a whole segment by itself, and if not, it uh, certainly could, called The White Goddess by Robert Graves. And The White Goddess, I read that very early, I, uh, maybe freshman year in college, and it was the first book that I read that was by someone who was demonstrably way smarter than me and was also demonstrably crazy. And it was an important moment in my young life to discover that just being smart, smart people can be crazy too. was not any kind of proof that you didn't believe nonsense. Uh, I, I sort of had a prejudice that if we could sort of all sit down and, and you're sure astrology is fine for dummies, but if once you're smart enough, you don't believe in anything like that. But nope, Robert Graves believes in the poetic tree alphabet of the druids and that every piece of mythology in, in continental and uh, insular Europe can be ascribed to the tree mythology of the Druids, and that the, the white goddess of the Druids is speaking to Robert Graves at this very moment and telling him how to interpret the tree knowledge, the tree alphabet. And it's, it's just the, such everything a... Everything is one thing. Everything is one thing. A, a magical, beautiful universe of trees. And if you've got the white goddess and the tree alphabet in your uh, elliptony DNA, the way that I do, the opportunity to extend it into the Anglo-Saxons was almost uh, irresistible, and I think that Della Hook is not to be tarred with the with the brush of um, uh, <laughs> of Peter Graves. I think that she, uh, or Robert, uh, Graves, Robert or Graves, or even of Peter Graves, frankly. Yes. Um, well, often he pulled off his mask and turned out to be Robert Graves. He did. He would, he would um, uh, say, and anyway, I can't do a Peter Graves impression because of my throat. But maybe a later, maybe a later segment. Anyway, the um, she is a a real uh, a scholar and is talking about. Uh, what we know from history about how timber was used, uh, what we can tell by, you know, growth patterns, what trees were cut down, what's a new growth forest uh, from the Saxon, Anglo-Saxon period. And then she also talks about all the tree myths and all the tree magic and the crazy uh, tree scriptures. And I have not yet gone into the book deeply enough to know if her scholarship is strong enough to have resisted crazy people, because a lot of times... A real scholar will look at a book and say, it has footnotes, it's about a topic I don't understand, I will incorporate it into my research, and that's how you get uh, people um, citing Lawrence Gardner with a straight face. And, and so you need to, um, I, I suspect I will have to go through this. She doesn't this know the a, back cover margins. Uh, right, she may not have, uh, the, 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 she may not know the tells. Um, and, and so I need to go through her sources. But even if her sources are all crazy, she will have presented them in a straightforward and scholarly fashion, which in and of itself will be a benison. And then if I can extend the magical tree alphabet of the Druids into uh, Beowulf times, I think that I will have won a personal victory. Uh, so 
Next up, you've got lots of biographies of Alistair uh, Crowley, or Crowley, as those who uh, prefer to uh, treat him foully say. Uh, but you, I guess, heretofore did not have any of them written by former members of, or perhaps current members of Blondie. Right. Uh, so this is Alistair Crowley, Magic's Magic with a K, Rock and Roll, and the Wickedest Man in the World by Gary Lockman. And Gary Lockman uh, was a founding member of Blondie, uh, and is since then has become one of the best popular historians of the occult that there is. His research is credible, even if it is not necessarily bulletproof. He has gotten ever more comfortable with the apparatus of scholarship, uh, footnotes and endnotes and citing sources and things like that. And this is his biography of Crowley. And when you are talking about someone who was in his own life and in his own mind, a pop culture creation, I think you can have uh, a lot of people write biographies of Crowley. And if they are not someone who was themselves a pop culture creation, they will maybe not get that. And I think that um, I, I think that uh, Gary Lockman is going to provide not just his standard uh good job of relatively neutral-minded research into the topic and his clear understanding of the historical uh, antecedents that Crowley grew out of, but also is going to give a little bit of more insight as to what it is like to build that self-image and what it is like to build that, uh, that, 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 that creature, um, uh, that, that creation. The, 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 you know, Crowley was sort of his own tulpa uh, in, in the in, in the way that they talk about you, we talked about Dali his his life was his most successful work of art I think Crowley's life may have been his most successful magical working and I think that Lachman is the guy to talk about what that means uh, from a, a pop cult perspective as well as a cult cult perspective well the next one I don't think we have to ask why you uh, picked it up uh, it's the Lost Ark of the Covenant by Tudor Parfit uh, who uh, very name suggests that uh, if they weren't an author, it would have to be a character in something, perhaps a Dickensian novel. Uh, why did this particular Lost Ark of the Covenant book leap onto your uh, pile? Well, I already have a Tudor Parfit book. I have The Lost Tribes of Israel by Tudor Parfit. Um, and so, therefore, I felt that it was necessary to continue my Tudor Parfit collection. Uh, the Ark is, you know, classically gameable material, obviously. I've got, I think, two or three books about the Ark that I know of, right off the top of my head. But it's always good to, you know, see what the latest is. I think that Tudor Parfit is doing the Graham Hancock thing where he finds it in Ethiopia because uh, Graham Hancock did it, and why should Tudor Parfit have to do a lot of work? <laughs> I, I suspect what it's going to provide primarily is the post-Al-Qaeda, post-Somali piracy uh, skin on Ark of the Covenant hunting. Uh, obviously, the Ark of the Covenant has a huge uh, political significance as well as its magical and, and religious and historical significance. And so the act of hunting for the Ark is a political act in a lot of ways. And whatever Tudor's specific agenda is going to be will no doubt uh, shine out revealed. Um, I suspect it will probably be uh, somewhat unsavory, but maybe not. And um, it's just a, you know, it's a, it's a good thing to have. It's, it's like the way that the UFO... Uh, we were previously talking about the way that the horror film reflects its era. Uh, Elliptony reflects its era as well. If you are expressing the same sorts of unease about the real world by retreating into an imaginary world, the, the retreat into an imaginary truth, an imaginary history, an imaginary physics is also reflective of the, the, of the strains from which you're retreating. So 
That said, it's just another awesome book about the Ark of the Covenant is why I bought it. Um, and Tudor Parfit, as you note, has got the kind of name that belongs on my bookshelf regardless. It could also be a dessert. It could also be a dessert or a pudding, even. Or a pudding. I think it's probably a pudding on dessert. Um, next up, uh, there's always good to get some local elliptine in uh, when you're in a place buying books. So you picked up Night Haunts, A Journey Through the London Night by Sukdev Sandhu. Yeah, this is not actually elliptine. This was just one of those books that sort of your gonzo journalist uh, uh, types do, where they go out into their city. And this is kind of a standard bit of, um, of sort of stock journalism by now. Uh, and they go out and they find people who are awake all night, who work all night, who work the night shift on various unglamorous or weird jobs. And you talk to them and you get sort of a, a vision of what your city truly is. And this, of course, goes back to De Quincey and to... Uh, uh, people like that, uh, than the notion that the city is only truly known when you see it at night. And certainly I have a lot of that in my, in my DNA. I'm a, I'm a night owl by inclination and I live in a fantastic city for wandering around in at night. And, and so I just picked that up because I love London and I figure anything that's in, in that that's interesting is going to wind up being gameable as well. Uh, because that's how interesting works in my experience. Cause that's the backdrop against which you can, uh, have the reality of a night in the city, which then starts to bleed into the uh, whatever action movie or horrific thing the characters go on to encounter. So that right. uh, this is your sort of grounding. You know, who's who's up at three a.m. in London? Oh well, uh, I hadn't thought of uh, you know this profession or these people who you might meet over here. So it's a resource in that sense. And again, um, in the same way that we were talking about the sort of uh, special pleading of, of, of the British historian, uh, this is the special pleading of the uh, would-be urban flaneur in which he's worried that uh, CCTV uh, has made London boring and his job is to find its magic again. So it's, it's sort of that Machen uh, project where, where Arthur Machen famously said, if you can't find romance along the Gray's Inn Road, you can't find it anywhere. And, of course, the Gray's Inn Road is, is one of the most boring suburban streets in London when uh, Machen wrote that. And I think that uh, Sukhdev Sandhu is, has, has got that same Machen-y surrealist uh, goal, that you have to be able to find uh, the magic in the quotidian or else you're not ever going to be able to understand the real world. And finally, we have uh, Ian Fleming's Commandos, the story of 30 Assault Unit in World War II by Nicholas Rankin. And I hardly need to justify this to anyone, because it says Ian Fleming's Commandos right on the cover of it. <laughs> yeah, so, so some of these are easier to figure yeah. out than others. And uh, 30 Assault Unit is basically the guys that uh, Fleming put together that their job was to go into uh, German or Axis uh, areas either right before or right after they were overrun and grab the code books. And their, their whole mission was to get code books so that they would be able to take them back to Britain and use them before the Germans knew that they'd uh, fallen. And, uh, you know, you, you very much an, uh, getting inside the enemy's decision loop, exploiting, uh, you know, weeks or even days-long advantage. Uh, so it's very uh, modern type of warfare, and it's just done in the exciting world of World War II, not in the, you know, even more exciting, but a little terrifying world of now. And, and, and also in an era in which the enemy had a code book that uh, you could seize as opposed to just picking it out of their cell phone. Um, and then also what they turned into as guys whose expertise was going into Germany and seizing documents, they became 
the guys who were in charge of the British version of Operation Paperclip, Operation Surgeon, where they would or also Operation Peppermint, where they went in and grabbed up all the nuclear documents, all the files from uh, the, 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 the German Navy, all the uh, archives of uh, the various uh, bits of the Holocaust that were happening in the West. You know, they, they grabbed all of that in the same way that Smirsch was doing it for the East, for the Nuremberg trials. They were doing this uh, for the West while also grabbing, you know, things like the, um, uh, you know, the German formulas for rocket fuel and stuff like that. So it was, it, it, it's that same blend of nobility and uh, great power maneuvering that marks the end of, of World War II, and Ian Fleming's commandos are the guys that are doing it. And so again, they're classic player character type unit, right? They're, uh, you know, you six guys have to bust into Castle, Castle Wolfenstein and come out with Hitler's you know, werewolf code book and the sample of the DNA of the werewolf soldiers or something. Right. So if, if uh, Simon and Cat ever greenlight your Gagan werewolf gumshoe game, this will become directly relevant. Right. This will be, become a big part of it. Well, that takes us uh, through yet another vicarious frenzy of book buying. So uh, everyone uh, head on over to uh, Amazon and see which of those are on Kindle as we move to our final segment of this episode. that everything around us is a scrim, the clatter of ill-conceived images, barely understood, and curious sense of pain tell us that we have entered a precinct of the culture hut inhabited by the enigmatic and large-chinned Antonin Arto. Or Antonin Artaud? Antonin Artaud is how I've been mangling it. That works for me. Right. What do we need to know about Artaud? Uh, so this is our uh, final episode in our uh, tour through the major surrealist figures who feature as player characters in Dreamhounds of Paris and its companion volume, The Book of Ants. We could go on and on, but the very way that I phrase that suggests that maybe people don't want us to, but there's <laughs> all sorts of other interesting figures who... If we wanted to make this a 13-part series, kind of a six-part series, we could do Cocteau and Bunuel. But I thought we would wrap up with Artaud because uh, he's a really interesting uh, figure to play. He's extremely influential on uh, theater and the theory of theater, although he never lived to see his influence uh, as far as he knew. He was just sort of an isolated, tortured figure screaming in the margins. But he goes on to a great uh, posthumous influence. And unlike a lot of the uh, surrealists who were uh, painters and poets or poets, uh, he was an actor and a theater director and a poet, and it is his theater theory that became his claim to fame. Uh, he was born in 1898, uh, and he dies in 1947. Uh, he was, uh, like a lot of the surrealists, uh, he had uh, a domineering parent, uh, in this case, a father also named Antoine Artaud. He came from a uh, sort of a suburban bourgeois background. He was uh, sickly uh, growing up and lived 
under this sort of pervasive sense of authority and religious dread and oppression. And uh, he was a bit of a troublemaker nonetheless. So uh, when he's 17, he goes off to Marseille and gets stabbed by a, a pimp. And that leads to a long hospitalization and uh, lifelong health problems. Uh, and in 1919, the fateful decision that sort of changes the course of his life, uh, his doctor prescribes him opium. And so for uh, the rest of the life, he is going through a cycle of either kicking or getting back on uh, first uh, laudanum and then later uh, laudanum and uh, heroin. Uh, he uh, heads to Paris. Uh, he starts getting uh, work as an actor. Uh, if you see him when he is young, he is uh, really striking looking and magnetic, and he uh, appears in a number of uh, film roles during the 20s, during the silent era in France, and uh, some of them are quite famous. His biggest role would be uh, the role of Marat in Abel Goss's uh, Napoleon, um, and he plays a lot of other roles, most of which he hates, because he is interested in changing the world through theater the way that the surrealists are interested in changing it through uh, pen and image. And uh, he uh, slowly, through the course of his career, grows more and more mentally unbalanced. And so the delusions that he has in real life in Trail of Cthulhu, if you are playing him as a character, become your reality. And there, uh, as is the case with a lot of these figures, there isn't a lot of reskinning you need <laughs> to do in order to make him an occult or horror character. You just say, this stuff he believed, it was really happening to him. So uh, what is the uh, thing that uh, sort of your, if, if you pick one mythos moment in the life of Arto, what's the one that we reinterpret everything else through? Or uh, is he like Dolly where there is a series of mythos moments? There, there's a whole series of mythos moments um, culminating uh, in his final um, mental breakdown. So we may uh, go back a bit and cover his connection with the Surrealists, but in the later uh, 30s, as uh, his uh, addiction worsens and uh, his uh, mental problems accelerate, he, uh, first of all, his uh, first performance of uh, the a play that is sort of uh, embodies his theor his theory the theater of cruelty uh, happens in 1935 and it's a horrible failure because <laughs> no one is prepared for something that uh, even 30 years later would completely freak people out and so he goes sort of into a vacation exile and goes to uh, Mexico and then to Cuba and in Cuba he attends a Santiera ceremony and at this ceremony uh, someone gives him a magic sword so this is a uh -huh. sword uh, a blade that has a, a a number of sort of ringlets uh, through it as you sometimes see in uh, as a product of uh, like chinese uh, uh, blade making but this is a a santiera sword so they give him this uh, magical artifact and he then begins to incorporate that more and more into his personal mythology slash hallucinatory experience. Um, the following year, he falls in with an occultist and painter named Manuel Caño de Castro, who teaches him the tarot. And so the tarot now increasingly becomes part of his world. And the uh, wife of one of his uh, art world friends then gives him his second magic item, which is the cane of St. Patrick. And he comes to believe 
that these are the two implements that he's going to use to touch off the apocalypse and bring about a new world in which he will be married to Breton's, uh, Andre Breton's wife, uh, Jacqueline. <laughs> wow. Talk about aiming low. I mean, well, nothing against Jacqueline, but come on. Nothing at all against Jacqueline. Even, she, even in France. Without the apocalypse part, <laughs> she might have been better off with someone other than Breton. <laughs> well, no. And again, I'm not making that argument either. I'm just saying that if I've got a magic sword and a magic stick and I get to marry anyone in the world in 1940, it's probably not going to be Mrs. Breton. Yeah, but you don't have a crush on Mrs. Breton. He did. Well, all right, fine. She I'm was just, the one. I'm just saying Veronica Lake would have to look out if I had the stick of St. Patrick That's in 1940. That's what proves he was sincere about bringing about the apocalypse. Right. I'm just doing it to, really get, to get next to Veronica Lake. Which, uh, but uh, there you go. she was somewhat taken aback when he told her this, let's just say. Well as you would be pretty much regardless i think <laughs> there's no there's no world in which that's a sound that's a good thing to hear i was uh, yeah i was perhaps engaged in canadian understatement there. um <laughs> so at any rate um he decides it's time uh he knows that it's time to bring about the apocalypse because the uh beings who have oppressed him for years reveal themselves as amorphous formless demons who start uh attacking and even raping him in order to prevent him from bringing about this transformation and destroying the fallen world and bringing about the ecstatic world. So right. he uh, tries to escape them by going to Dublin, uh, where he is going to uh, touch off the apocalypse. And as you know, Ken, from your own efforts to touch off Apocalypse uh, in the past, authorities look dimly on uh, you when you're running around a city proclaiming the imminent destruction of uh, the world and brandishing your magical artifacts. So, uh, and also he's penniless. He didn't take any money with him because he didn't have any. He was impoverished through most of his life. So he is arrested and sent back to uh, Paris. He's deported and then he's institutionalized. And uh, this is sort of the sad trailing off of his life and career. He bounces from a series of uh, institutions uh, in, in up to and including the occupation. And in 1943, his friend uh, Robert Desnos, who's another playable character in Dreamhounds, uh, who knows that Arto has to be protected in order to maintain the spell that he's uh, cast on Hitler to ensure his defeat, then whisks him from a hospital in the occupied territories into one in the unoccupied territories of France. But unfortunately, the head doctor there is himself an aspiring poet and surrealist. Ah. Uh, at this time, Artaud, in order to protect himself from the demons who are trying to stop him not only from uh, ending the world and bringing in, ushering in the new better world, and also, of course, to maintain his anti-Hitler magic, has stopped speaking. He's reduced his uh, communication to a series of grunts and growls. Well, this is no good if you're the head of a uh, psychiatric department and want yourself to be a famous surrealist poet. You want to revive Artaud's artistic abilities so that you can then ride on his coattails into the art scene. So this doctor subjects him to what you would do uh, in any case. I'm sure you do this as well when you need your creativity kickstarted, a series of electroshock treatments. Yes. And this leads to uh, his even greater deterioration. In 46, he's finally released, and he goes on this incredible spurt of creative energy and uh, uh, creates a lot of the work that then becomes the basis of his uh, later influence, including the theater and its double, or the documents that become the basis for the theater and its double. And uh, sadly, uh, he lives for uh, just over a year and then uh, finally succumbs to cancer. And if you see... 
uh, pictures of him in this final state, which are often included in editions of the theater and its double. He is this incredibly uh, wizened looking uh, man who looks like he's in his 80s or uh, 90s when in fact he's, uh, you know, just barely heading to our age. Right. Well, that's kind of a sad ending for um, uh, for for one of our uh, our, our surrealist buddies. Uh, it is a sad ending, but if you like Pyrrhic victories, uh, the theater and its double is rediscovered in 1964 and then becomes the basis for essentially all experimental theater. Uh, and so uh, it is something that he initially started doing based on seeing a Balinese dance troupe and noting its affinity for ritual and the interest in ritual is what he had in common with the Surrealists. And so uh, he took that and incorporated that into uh, this form of theater that was supposed to be very propulsive and visceral and sort of hit you in your bones and uh, use music and be non-narrative. And so if the Dadaists invented performance art, which I would suggest that they did, uh, Artaud uh, didn't invent experimental theater, but might as well have. He gave it its form. Yes. Right. And so all of the later experiments of the 60s and 70s, uh, Jerzy Grotowski and all of those other people, any sort of uh, non-narrative, crazy, uh, sens sensory assault kind of theater that you've uh, heard of or, or been to uh, comes in some way from Artaud. Right. Um, now, Artaud... Uh, was theatrical, and uh, I uh, find, with a modicum of research, that he has influenced a lot of musicians. Did he write uh, songs, or did he, did he write music himself? Is he connected to composers at the time, or is it only guys in the 60s during this, uh, art, or 80s during this Artaud Renaissance that, that add music to the, 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 the plays and poetry and whatnot. He worked with experimental composers. Um, the anecdote that is most relevant to our interest here is his collaboration with the uh, early electronic or pre-electronic composer Edgard Verasse, uh, for whom he wrote the libretto for an opera or tried to write a libretto for an opera that I think, I think he finally finished it long after Verasse had moved on. And this was called The Astronomer. And the plot of this experimental opera was all about a planet that was heading toward Earth and uh, would uh, both destroy it, but also recreate it in an ideal utopian form. So, uh, again, if, if you don't know how to turn that into something in your Dream Hands of Paris campaign... You're um, not paying attention. We, we have not tutored you enough. Right. And uh, he also wrote something about uh, Heligabalus, which means that he can be tied into your Rosicrucians, because Heligabalus, of course, famously uh, drowned people under a giant pile of rose petals. And yes, he was, he was uh, one of the many crazy Roman em emperors. Mm -hmm. uh, Artaud was, uh, just took that on as a freelance gig. He was commissioned to write a biography of uh, Heliogabulus, and it was through that that his interest in the occult, per se, uh, really started to deepen. Right. Uh, Heliogabulus, uh, famously a uh, worshiper of Kybele, the uh, castrating goddess. And if you uh, think too hard about what that gets you when you are uh, the absolute ruler of the known world, well, Caligula would be going, uh, no, not not for me, thanks, Heliogabulus. <laughs> That's a little creepy. Heliogabulus, you'd be crazy. You, you, you nuts. What the heck? And I should also mention that he is an early experimenter with and uh, popularizer of peyote, right? Yes. So he and um, uh, Aldous Huxley are there uh, hooking up with the mescalines. 
Yes, that was part of his whole sort of ecstatic transformation in in Mexico. Mm-hmm. So, what else do we do we know about uh, our toad? Are there are there other uh, components of our toad that we might need to know? Let's let's say that he's not a player character. Uh, let's say that he's a non-player character. Does he just show up with his magic sword and his magic stick? Is it your surrealist job to stop our toad, or as a surrealist, are you like, yay, let's have an apocalypse? By the time he is uh, having his final meltdown in real history, the Surrealists had uh, distanced themselves from him because, guess what, uh, Breton didn't like actual madness. <laughs> and he didn't like people hitting on his wife. Uh, and uh, he didn't like people who he saw as, as rivals. Mm-hmm. Uh, initially, uh, when they first met in the early 20s, uh, Breton was over the moon about Artaud and, in fact, made him the head of the movement briefly Ooh. when he himself wanted to kind of withdraw from it. Uh, and then, of course, had to destroy him because he put him in charge and had to get rid of him. Right. Um, there's a really interesting sort of funny story where at that time, the Surrealist movement had an office with office hours. <laughs> uh, and the first thing Artaud did uh, when uh, he got appointed official head of the Surrealist movement was he uh, occupied the office and closed the hours. But uh, he, he was uh, always sort of an uneasy footing with uh, uh, Breton. So if you are a Bretonian Surrealist, you might indeed... Uh, be a little nervous about uh, him being the one to uh, touch off the apocalypse. Uh, but then, if you're one of the player characters and you know that he's being attacked by Cthuloid entities, uh, you know, and anyone being attacked by Cthulhu uh, is clearly the good guy who you want to go and, and help somehow. So, you know, maybe he's misunderstanding some of the details of uh, the end of the world, or maybe he's right. Maybe this will uh, send the planet crashing into Earth that brings about the uh, apocalypse. He himself wasn't interested in a psychic revolution the way Breton was, uh, but uh, nonetheless, uh, he wanted uh, a radical uh, changing of the world and thought he was destined to bring one about. So uh, perhaps victory is the one uh, that if you let him, you know, if, if you just go with him to Dublin and prevent him from getting arrested and let him go on with it, maybe that leads to a lighter timeline where World War II doesn't happen. Right, and uh, where Mrs. Breton sees the error of her ways and hooks up with Antoine Artaud. Well, uh, on that uh, happy note of the brighter timeline, I believe that we can leave the theater of happy cruelty and therefore leave the podcast as a whole. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Palgrain Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Keep us in curved pipes and deerstalkers by hitting the donate button at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Join such illustrious patrons as... Neil Kaplan. Andrew Miller. And PJ Dack. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, book, or theater of cruelty by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff.